My name is Trisha Rhodes. I'm one of the global pastors. My husband and I, Joe, you heard last week. And um, I, I'm going to give a, a little plug. He wouldn't want me to, but he preached on humility. Any of you hear that? Yeah, that it was such an amazing sermon. And I really encourage you, if you didn't hear it, to go back and hear it. And if you did hear it, to get those little pointers out and put them where you can see them regularly, because it was just so amazing. Uh, but this morning, I want to tell, when I was a child, I would like to say I was precocious. Uh, my mom's here. She can tell you whether that's true or not. But actually, most of the people around me just said I talked a lot. <laughs> I was always getting in trouble for interrupting someone. And uh, my mom, who had five children by the time she was 25, uh, would say, yeah, and she's still alive at 92. Uh, <laughs> She would say things like, can't you be quiet for one minute? Or, I think you talk to hear the sound of your own voice. <laughs> and then, I, it wasn't just my family. I remember going over to my best friend Becky Beamer's house one day, and her mom came out, and she said, I have a poem to read to you. And she had it in writing, and she gave it to me, and I've never forgotten it. And it went like this, the wise old owl sat in the oak. The more he heard, the less he spoke. The less he spoke, the more he heard. Why can't we all be like that wise old bird? <laughs> I think she was trying to, yeah, ow, she was trying to tell me something. Uh, hopefully, I've outgrown that, but I will say this. As I've looked back at my childhood, I really believe with all that chatter, I was trying to feel like somebody heard me, Somebody saw me, somebody knew me. And I actually believe that's one of the deepest desires of the human soul, to be seen, to be heard, and to be loved. And so this morning, I'm going to talk about what I'm calling the spiritual discipline of curiosity. The spiritual discipline of curiosity. But first, let me tell you about a robot named Curiosity. Uh, in November 26, at 7.02 a.m. in the year 2011, NASA launched a car-sized rover, and it would take many, many months to get there, but it finally landed on Mars. It had a seven-foot robotic arm. It had 10 scientific instruments and 17 cameras, which, by the way, after the first service, Joe came and got me, took me over to one of our people, and his name was Hakeem, and I found out he actually built one of those cameras. Amazing. You don't know what amazing people are among us here. <laughs> but anyway, it, that, can't, that rover has been sending data back about the atmosphere, the environment, the rocks, the air, ever since 2011. It still is, and here is one of their latest, and you can think about Hakeem as you watch it. This is the largest and highest resolution panorama the Curiosity rover has ever taken. It's made up of almost 1,200 individual images taken over four days. What I love about this panorama is that we can zoom way in and see details far in the distance. When you start to do that, you can see the rim of the crater we're inside of all the way to the north. Here's an impressive sight. 20 miles away is Slangpost Crater, 
just inside Gale Crater's rim. End-to-end, Slangpost is three miles wide. Something huge must have struck here. Whenever I start to think that Mars looks familiar, sites like this dramatic impact crater remind me that we're looking at a different planet. Trailing behind the rover, you can see our tracks, including where we climbed up a hill. Even after seven years on Mars, Curiosity is not done making tracks yet. Panoramas like this are like a window to another world. Amazing uh, graphic. You can find tons of videos. But the reason that I decided to show that was I believe that every human being made in the image of God has a soul that is infinitely complex vastly unimaginable, and rarely explored. And so this is why I want to talk about the discipline of curiosity. Uh, Joe and I were at a conference a few years ago, and the teacher was telling about a friend of his who went to a marriage conference with Larry Crabb. Uh, Larry Crabb is one of the best uh, practical life writers of our day. He actually passed away last year. But uh, his book, How to Make Your Children Mind Without Losing Yours, was actually saved my life uh, when my son was sick. So uh, I recommend any of his books. But this husband came up to Larry at the end of the marriage conference, and he said, Larry, tell me, what kind of husband do you think I am? Give me some feedback. I want to know. And Larry said, are you sure you you want me to shoot straight? And the husband said, yeah, come on, bring it on. And Larry said a few things, and he ended with this. Your wife is lonely, and her soul is unexplored. Yeah, that's heavy. But I actually believe that for many people sitting here today, we we could say the same thing. We feel lonely. We feel like our soul is unexplored. But as human beings, unlike any other species that God created, you and I have the privilege of exploring the souls of other people that God brings into our lives. It's an amazing thing, and that's why I call it a spiritual discipline. So let me explain that. First of all, the word curiosity, it just means a desire to know, an inquisitive interest in others' concerns to the point of nosiness, interest leading to inquiry. And then spiritual discipline, this is just how I define it in the simplest way. It's a way to create space for God to make us more like him, okay? So when we pray and we have our face time, we're creating space for God to come in and transform us. When we come here and we worship, we're actually, that's a spiritual discipline. We're creating space for God to come and make us more like himself. So curiosity is a way that you can create space for God to come in and give you the capacity to make others seen and known and heard. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. Now, our role model, obviously, is God himself. Did you ever notice that God is always asking questions? Uh, it's so interesting. The transcendent other is asking questions when it's, the Bible tells us he knows everything. He comes to Adam and Eve in the garden when they've sinned and he doesn't begin to just blast them. He starts asking questions. Where are you? What have you done? Who told you you were naked? 
And on and on we see this through scripture. We see Elijah when he goes to the cave running away from God. And God doesn't say anything at first. He just asks him a simple question. He says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And then he throws the, the wind and the earthquake and the fire. And Elijah's, you know, in the mouth of the cave. And then this little whisper comes and it asks the same thing. What are you doing here, Elijah? And one of my favorites is the story of Hagar, who was the mistress of Abraham. Sarah had given him this mistress so he could have an heir, and she was his wife. Sarah was his wife, and then she started treating Hagar terribly. And Hagar had to run away. It was just so bad, so abusive. And she's alone in the desert, and God sends an angel to her to talk to her. But this is what the angel says. Where have you come from? And where are you going? Isn't that powerful? Where have you come from? And where are you going? And then it goes on to tell about the angel promise. She tells her story. The angel hears it. And then he promises she will have a son. And then she says, you are the God who sees me. I have now seen the one who sees me. Have you seen the God who sees you? And of course, Jesus did the same thing. The religious scholar comes to him in the temple, I mean the synagogue, and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, what a gospel presentation moment, right? Preach the gospel. No. He says, well, what does it say in the law to you? And how do you see it? He's asking questions. Or the blind man by the side of the road saying, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do? For you. Or a really fun one on the road to Emmaus, two men are walking. This is after Jesus has died, and they're walking along talking about Jesus' death. They don't know he's risen from the dead. I could just see the smile on Jesus' face as he joins them, but he doesn't immediately say anything. He just listens, and they're having this conversation. He's, then he says, What is this conversation you're having? What are you talking about? And then they just kind of respond. They can't even believe he's so, that he doesn't know what's going on, all the things. And he says to them, what things? Why is the transcendent, all-knowing God always asking questions? I believe it's because he wants you and I to feel seen and heard and known. And he wants to come and explore our souls with us. I remember back in, uh, several years ago when I was at a place I didn't know what to do in ministry. We had finished some projects at our church, and I didn't have a place to jump right in. I didn't feel like I had a book to write, and I just kept asking God for his will. Tell me what I'm supposed to do. Tell me what I'm supposed to do. And then one day, the Holy Spirit asked me a question, and, and it came to me like this. What would you do if you could do what you wanted for the rest of your life. It blew me away, and it put me on the beginning of a journey that absolutely transformed my life and everything I would do for the rest of my life. But he did it by asking a question. God is a curious God because he wants us to feel seen and heard and known. Now, I want to give a caveat here uh, because when we hear messages like this, we always tend to think of how we wish other people were like that. You may be sitting there thinking, I wish my husband was more like this. 
I wish my wife was more like this. I wish my roommates were like this. I wish, and I just want to tell you, you have no control over that. You cannot change anyone else. But what you do have control over is you can become a Mars rover in the souls of other people. You have control over that. Now, let me tell you what Jesus says about that. He said it's more blessed to give than to receive. What does that mean? Your joy. You may not understand this, but I pr- at my old age, <laughs> I promise you this is true from the depths of my beings. Your greatest joy is not being seen, known, and heard by others. Your greatest joy is making others be- feel seen, known, and heard because that's the kind of God we serve. Uh, God knows us, though, and being known by God can satisfy that place in you that needs that. Psalm 139.1, the psalmist says, you have searched me and known me. Do you know God is searching you? Not to convict you of sin. Yes, he does that, but that psalm is all about telling you how wonderful you are. He's searching you for that reason, Galatians 4.9. But now that you know God, and then it's almost like Paul catches himself, and he says, or rather are known by God. What does that mean? Do you think about that? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8.3, but whoever loves God is known by God. John Piper says it this way. Deeper than knowing God is being known by God. What defines us as Christians is not most profoundly that we have come to know him, but that he took note of us and made us his own. I'm leading a a study of my book, The Soul at Rest, which, by the way, it is in the bookstore, along with all of your staff's books. Be sure you check them out. But I'm leading a study of it with uh, our church planning women, Shout out to all our church planters that we love <laughs> all over the world. And a bunch of them are doing it nine at night. Our side of the world, we're at six in the morning. We all come together on Zoom, and we've been doing it. And last week, I shared a couple of uh, struggling things I was dealing with in my life. And uh, Jen Edwards from Southeast Asia sent me a boxer after that uh, just to encourage me and say that she was telling me how God saw me and how much she loved me. And then she went on to say, you are like an opal gemstone to him. And she sent me a picture of an opal gemstone. And what it says is it's a precious stone whose color changes when the position of the person looking at it changes. And I want you to know you are an opal gemstone. And every time God comes to you, he's looking at you from a different angle. And he's knowing you in a different way way you are precious to him this is true for every one of us god comes and explores the depths of our being he hears the tiniest whispers of our hearts and one of the reasons we don't experience this is because we're just too busy we're too busy doing things for god we're too busy trying to measure up to some expectations we're too busy trying to get the job done get the job done right And we don't create that space to be known by God. He wants you to feel known. So today I'm going to take just some principles. If you can turn in your Bibles to Psalm 116. This is one of my favorite passages, and it has my life verse in it. 
So uh, 116, we're going to read 1 through 7. We're going to look at how God operates as our role model so we can learn how to be practice the discipline of curiosity. I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came over me. I was overcome by distress and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Lord, save me. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. The Lord protects the unwary. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return to your rest, my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. So the first thing we see in verse 1 is God hears. God hears. I love the Lord, for he heard my voice, he heard my cry for mercy. Now, this is not like my oldest son when he was two used to come in and he would grab my face and go like that so that my eyes were looking at him to make sure I heard him because I wasn't really hearing him. God's not like that. You don't have to grab his face and turn it your way. He hears the tiniest whisper of your heart. He hears even when no one else does. And then the second thing is another level, God listens. Verse 2, because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. Now that word turned his ear to me is a word that actually comes from the root of pitching a tent. So it's basically saying when God hears, he pitches his tent and he puts the stakes in. So he's going to be there to listen to what you have to say. God listens. That's what it means to be listen. It listen, it means to be present. And I have to say this is a dying art. And I'm not the one who's saying it. Everywhere you look, the corporate world is saying, "We don't know what to do. We've lost the art of listening." Harvard Business Review said it this way. It can be stated with practically no qualification that people in general do not know how to listen. They have ears that hear very well, but seldom have they acquired the necessary oral skills which would allow those ears to be used effectively for what is called listening. And God set an example for you and me. We pitch our tent with the people who are with us and sharing with us. And then the third level of God's uh, curious heart is God feels with us. In verses 3 through 6, the psalmist goes on, talk, the cords of death entangled me, the anguish. He's telling how horrible it is, distress and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord, Lord save me. And then it says this, the Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion That word compassion literally means to be able to feel what we feel. It's empathy in our language. So God doesn't just hear. He doesn't just pitch his tent and hang out there. He actually enters into our story so he can feel the things we're feeling. And that is what it means to have a heart of curiosity. And then finally, verse 7, God brings us back to rest. Return to your rest, my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. Now, I am Danish. My mom's full Dane, and I'm half Dane. And several years ago, one of her relatives brought this book to her, and it's called The Little Book of, and I won't say it right, but it's something like Hugh. 
And um, they say at the very beginning book that no one says it right. But, you know, the Danes actually claim to be the happiest nation on earth. They, I don't know if it is, but all the research, they keep saying they're the happiest nation on earth. And this book is, is to tell you why. And so it's because of Hug or Hug or however you say it. And it's an atmosphere they try to create. So I thought I would just read it from the book. It says, Hug is about an atmosphere and an experience rather than about things. It is about being with the people we love, a feeling of home, a feeling that we are safe, that we are shielded from the world and allow ourselves to let our guard down. You may be having an endless conversation about the small or big things in life, or just be comfortable in each other's silent company, or simply just be by yourself enjoying a cup of tea. That's Hug, and I believe that's what God brings us to when we let him explore our souls, when he listens and pitches his tent, when he feels what we feel, we're brought back to a place of rest. Now, that is our role model. So how can we cultivate a heart like that? Here's where it gets practical. And so this is where you should really take notes. I've been thinking maybe we need to make a bookmark and have Joe's practicals from humility and my practicals from curiosity on the other side. Joe said last week, you don't just get humility by osmosis. You have to go do humble things to become humble. Same thing about this. You're not going to get a curious heart by just hoping it'll come or hearing a message. This will not give you a curious heart. But by practicing, practice, practice, practice. So I'm going to give you some practicals. How can you practice curiosity? The first one is set an intention. This is, I love brain science and applying it to our spiritual journeys. And what they've discovered is when you set a very specific intention, that means you make a plan that says the what, the how, the when, and you write it down or you say it out loud to someone, your brain loves that. And it actually moves you along in the process. And uh, it's kind of like my grandmother used to say, beginning is half done. It's kind of like that. Once you actually set the intention, you're already on your way. And we're going to have a few minutes to do that at the end here. The next thing, and I'm sorry to be so frank, I had it worded more nicely, and I felt like I had to come back to this. Stop talking. <laughs> Stop talking. Frank Laubach, who was a missionary and uh, wrote amazing spiritual uh, growth books, said this, and he died in 1970, so I'm not even sure what year he said this, but he said, an exaggerated emphasis on ourselves is the disease of the age. And if that were true before technology and social media, how much more is it true today? And I, I just feel like this is something we just have to get a handle on because I, I think we're kind of like I was as a little girl and we haven't outgrown it. We all are talking to hear the sound of our own voice. This is the way our culture operates. Are you countercultural as a follower of Jesus? One of the ways, one of the most important ways you can be countercultural is to stop talking and start listening. And some of you don't need that word, but I think most of us do. I know I need to hear it again and again. All right, the next one is you can actually train your brain. So here's what, here's the, here's what I've discovered and found out and studied is that uh, 
Your brain works twice as fast as I'm talking, okay? So right now, your brains are probably doing more than listening to me. Your brains are trying to plan what you're going to have for lunch. Your brains are trying to think about when you can get to the beach because it's so hot in here. Uh, you're doing all these other things. And let me just tell you, no shame because you can't control that. Your brain is going to do more because I can't talk as fast as your brain works. But what you can do is train your brain to be present. You can train your brain to be thinking thoughts about what they're saying, to be thinking questions you can ask them, to be thinking what's going on in them. You can train your brain. It takes some work. But you can pitch your tent and be there and listen. Next, ask questions. Ask questions. Now, I uh, am not naturally curious. I, I just wasn't born with a lot of curiosity. And I know this because I'm married to somebody that's very curious. Joe has 100 questions he hasn't asked you yet. <laughs> if you've ever talked with him, he's asked 100, but he has 100 more. And uh, he just was born that way, but I'm not. So what I've had to do is watch him and people like him to figure it out, but also memorize some prompts. Take these prompts. I'll give you a few, but you can come up with your own, and there's nothing wrong with memorizing them and using them. I've never said, had anybody say to me, I can tell you're using a prompt. I don't want to tell you my story. <laughs> no. So here's some prompts. Can you tell me more? I'd like to hear more about that. What was that like? What was that like? How is this affecting you? How is this affecting you? Those are just three. You can come up some more, with some more, but ask questions when someone's sharing. Uh, now, be attentive. And I want to say, be attentive. The number one thing you... Uh, digital natives, that means you came into the world of technology. The rest of us, very few of us, but there's a handful of us out here, we're called digital immigrants. That means we know what life was like when all we had was a TV and a radio and we didn't have any internet. And we know the difference, the before and after. And I want to say to you, digital natives, your phone is not another limb. It does not have to be attached to you at all times. It can be set aside. It can be turned off. You can put it on airplane mode. What a great idea when you're going to have a conversation with someone. Set it aside so you can listen. Joe and I, even though we're digital immigrants, we have to remind each other of this. Every morning we sit down, uh, after our personal prayer times, we sit down together and pray for each other's day. And invariably, one of us gets a text or a you know, paying a beep or something, and we're always having to call the other one on it. And I can't say he's worse than me, although I, I wish he, I, I kind of think he is, but uh, he would probably have a different story. <laughs> uh, but be attentive. Give people eye contact. Don't wander with your eyes. Lean in, not too hard. Don't make them feel like you're going to jump, but lean in and give them body language that says, I'm here. My tent is here. I am with you. And then finally, solicit their story. Do you realize that every person in your life, and indeed every person in this room, has an amazing life story, if we heard it? I mean, when I met Hakeem this morning, I didn't have time because it was between services, but I thought, 
I would love to hear the life story of a guy who created a camera for the Curiosity rover that went to Mars. And you know what? I would never have known that. We don't know each other's stories. So solicit their story. We also have a story from this week. And often our story from this week is filled with heartache or struggle. And no one's asking about our story. We're not asking each other. Solicit their story because here's what they've discovered in the science again. They've scanned the brain. If I just tell you something like this, my brother died during COVID last year. You might feel some sympathy, but nothing will happen in your brain. They've studied this. They've scanned the brain. But if I begin to tell you the story of how he had a disabled wife that he was taking care of, and when he had a stroke, it changed all of that, and she suddenly had no one to take care of her, and he was put in rehab, and I worked for three years to try to take care. I, I could just go on and on with the story, and then if I were to tell you about how he finally had one sickness after another and finally got so sick that he was dying, and they led us into this rest home, which you're not supposed to get into during COVID, and how he woke up in his final hours uh, and held my hand and said, I sure do love you. Now, when I tell you that story, what's happening in your brains is that parts of my brain that are lighting up, the same parts of your brain are lighting up. It's been proven. It's called mimicry. Our brains love stories. And when we hear them, we actually can begin to feel what other people feel. So solicit people's stories. Find out what their story is. You will be so much better for it. So that's the first point, and those are the practicals. Practice the discipline of curiosity. And then the second point is ask for the grace of a curious heart. Ask for the grace. You know, everything is from God, through God, and to God. We don't come up with this stuff on our own. We can practice the discipline, but if God doesn't come in with his grace, we're not going to be changed, and we want to be changed. And so this has to become the cry of our heart. What we're asking God to do in each one of us is to make us like him, right? We want to hear people. We don't want them to have to get our attention. We want to listen. We want to pitch our tent so they know we're present. We want to feel what they feel. And we want them to leave our presence in a place of peace and rest and comfort. That's the curious heart. That's what we're asking for. I want to just end with this story. Two years ago, Joe and I uh, were at a crossroads, so to speak. We had left the church we pastored for 36 years. We started and pastored, and um, then we, we turned it over, and then we went on a nine-month sabbatical. It's our only sabbatical we'd ever had, so it was a long one. And um, the whole time we were processing our future, we had felt like God had said we were going back to the church to support the couple in charge. We were going to be there the rest of our lives. But the minute I got back, I was not settled. I did not feel like I knew what I was supposed to be doing, and I kept asking. You know, they wanted us to be in staff meetings. They wanted us to do things, and God would just not give me any answers. And I was so struggling with what am I supposed to do, and I didn't have any answers. And I was leading a cohort of students at Fuller Seminary, and uh, one of them was just probably one of these guys that's born curious, but he always would ask me questions. And um, as leader of a group, that rarely happens, but he just was relentless. And one final meeting we had, 
where I was just sharing the struggle of, of living with this ambiguity, of feeling like, well, I know what God said we're supposed to do, but I'm totally restless. I don't know what to do. And he uh, sent me a text after our meeting, and he said a couple things, and then he said this, what is it that fuels your core, and how can you feed that? What is it that fuels your core, and how can you feed that? And I have to tell you what it felt like was that Mars rover had just hit a big chasm in my soul that I never knew about because I had not asked that question. I hadn't even known to ask that question. But as soon as I began to ask it, God began to show me these markers over the last several years that were leading to one thing. And there were nine of them. And it was all this. It was taking everything he's taught me about soul care and pouring it into the next generation. If that friend hadn't asked me that question, I don't know if I would have got to that answer. But one month later, we were sitting in the office with Robert and Stephanie saying, we don't know, but we think God may be calling us to all people's church. <laughs> we didn't know what would happen. We didn't know we'd be on staff. We just said, this is the next generation. We want to come and pour into it. 